I just want to remind you guys um, and just let those of you who are new here know that we're in the midst, we're almost at the end of this series, kind of walking through the New Testament called Everything New. And I just want to thank Ed for the great videos he's put together that helps us understand an overview of each particular section of Scripture. So we're going to look at, at one of these letters this morning that Paul wrote to an individual. But I first have a confession to share with you. Um, we recently just spent 10 days in South Africa, my family did, visiting our daughter Tracy. I have a picture of her um, there with a the child that she's been tutoring um, So we went to visit her in South Africa, and we arrived home late last Sunday night and after about 30 hours of travel. And uh, Monday morning arrived. I don't know how your Monday mornings are the day after a vacation, but um, I was jet-lagged and behind. We had no food in the fridge. The basement was full of laundry. My dog was desperately needy at the kennel, um, and I had bills that needed to be paid, and I had a sermon to write. And I thought this to myself, I know what I'll do. I will pray to God for grand insight, for some phenomenal flash of theological truth about these letters of Paul's, and I will ask him to simply give me a teaching that will wow your socks off. He he would do that for me, right? Well, See, I've prayed this prayer many times before, this delusional prayer of grandeur. And every single time, God's good spirit speaks to me in my spirit. And he does this with the kindness and gentleness of a father who loves me, but also with the clarity of someone who knows me at the deepest level. And this is what I felt God was saying to me. Alice, you have nothing to teach. Only things to learn. Why don't you just teach what I'm teaching you? And I thought, really, God? (laughs) This is so humbling every time it happens. To go from this power prayer for grand teaching insights to the reality of who I really am and who God really is. And then to face that gap and to have God say, teach out of your brokenness. Do not teach out of your perceived strength. For where you are weak, I am strong. So that's all I have for you this morning. I mean, not just that, but I mean, that's all I have for you is stuff that God has been teaching me. So we traveled to South Africa, which, if you didn't know, is very far away. And one thing that 20 hours on an airplane will do for a person, along with jet lag and then sharing one room and one bathroom with your grown children for a week, that was a mistake, is it will bring you to your knees, And it will bring you to a very clear picture of your tendencies, let's just say. That's another word for sin. I have lots of tendencies. And I found my mind during especially the first days of this trip drifting back to the passage we're going to look at this morning, which is Titus 3, verses 1 through 8. And it's right in your bulletin if you want to follow along. In the midst of this letter that Paul wrote to Titus, it's very kind of church governance-centered we come across one of those bits of Paul's writing that give us a glimpse into God's heart for how he wants those who love him and who follow Christ to live in this world. So in the first couple chapters of Titus, there's only three chapters in the little book. Paul, first couple, he's really writing about church governance, and then he switches. He switches his focus, and this is what he says. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, 
to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to always be gentle toward everyone. I just want to share a couple thoughts that God has been imparting on me from this text. And here's a super piece of good news. You and I will have endless opportunities this next week to live out this text. Isn't that awesome? So the first one that he says, the very first thing Paul leads out with is this admonition. Be subject to rulers and authorities. Anybody know how that might fit in with our life right now? Here's what I learned when I went to South Africa with no agenda except to visit my daughter and to, and to go there with eyes wide open, to look and to listen and to learn. It's a beautiful country filled with beautiful people. But it is only 18 years out of apartheid, which was this brutal discrimination law which centered on the separation of the races. And it based that separation on a sense that white people were more valuable in the eyes of God than black people which I learned as I did a little bit of research, I'm really sad to say, had its roots in the Dutch Reformed Church. Which is another reason why it is so important for us to understand that some of the statements in Scripture, some of the things that Paul writes are culturally bound. They are in no way prescriptive for all time. They are not the will of God. And the biblical references to slavery and assessing a human being's worth by the color of their skin is one of those issues. So this was back in the 40s and 50s when people in South Africa, people who were in power, used scripture to try to prove that people with a different skin color than them were less human in the eyes of God. That's how apartheid started. We did that too, if you remember. In our country on the issue of slavery, we used scripture and we view at this church many of the writings of Paul about women in this same way that they were culturally bound or else I wouldn't be standing up here, would I? How we interpret, I just want to say this one thing, how we interpret and understand these writings of Paul is critical. And I know how tempting it is to just read the words on the page in English and say to yourself, it says it in plain English and that's all I need to know. But not understanding the culture and the context and what Paul was trying to address can be really dangerous and damaging to the cause of Christ. No matter how Bible honoring it looks on the surface. And this is one of those issues. Slavery. And witnessing the ramifications of it in South Africa were heartbreaking. So here's my main point about being subject to rulers and authorities. I get that our country is not perfect. And I get that we've become cynical about government. I mean, you can't not see that out there. And I get all the apocalyptic messaging about how if so-and-so wins the election, our nation will come to an end. But here's the deal. To listen to cab drivers in South Africa talk about their president, Jacob Zuma, and how corrupt he is, and how he's spending millions of dollars on himself and his four wives, and driving by townships where only black people who make up 75% of South Africa were clustered together. I have a photo of one of the townships. They're clustered together in some of the most degrading housing situations I've ever seen. The folks in those townships have no rights. They live without electricity or running water or decent schools. And here's my point. 
that I learned just by keeping my eyes open. We are in an enviable situation, my friends, compared to the rest of the world. And we tend to forget about that and we get so spoiled. We can elect who we want. We can protest. We can be involved. We can run for office ourselves. We can speak our mind in this country without fear of punishment or death. And though none of our leaders are perfect, and our government, because it's made up of fallen human beings, is full of scandal and corruption too, we have it way easier than most Christians when it comes to being able to be obedient to this text. There's a beautiful story uh, that my husband actually found for me of a East Des Moines high school teacher. I have a picture of him. His name's Rob Seiler. He teaches at a Baptist, private Baptist school in East Des Moines. He's been a Republican his whole life and a little bit of a hard rocker. He has a little tiny bit of a rebel edge to him. He's been a Republican his whole life, but he's most of all a follower of Jesus. And so in his Baptist Christian classroom, he has created um, a silhouette of Barack Obama because he's the president of the United States. And so many people challenged him and so many people called him on it. And yet this is what he says about why he put that in his room. He said, I wanted to put the kibosh on negative comments about Obama. I wanted to remind my students that submitting to government authority is a biblical mandate whether that government is led by a Republican or a Democrat. And so right across the chest of the silhouette of Barack Obama, this is the text that Seiler put, Romans 13.1, which is, again, the words of Paul. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. This is something Paul commands to those of us who follow Christ Over and over and over. And here's why he commands it. His primary concern isn't that Christians defend their rights. That's nowhere in the scriptures. His primary concern isn't that Christians make sure we don't get persecuted. His primary concern was that followers of Jesus live in this world in such a way that they do not cast dispersion on the name of Jesus. And being obedient and respectful and honoring to those in power was one of the ways that he was calling Christians to behave so that their message of the gospel of Christ could carry and not get cast down. So here's the super good news about this. No matter the outcome of the election on Tuesday, a good chunk of us are going to be disappointed. Isn't that awesome? And yet... And yet, what God is going to do in that moment, listen to me, I'm serious on this, is he will be handing you or me or all of us, who knows, the perfect opportunity to practice being obedient to what he says, just like Rob Seiler. Isn't that kind and good of God? Be subject to rulers and authorities, Paul leads off with. Second word from Paul, which I think is just as apropos for this weekend before the election. He says, slander no one. And yes, if you post it on Facebook, it's still slander. Slander no one, he says. So I have a quick story about my slandering self, and I have a quick photo that might give you a clue as to what my story is going to be about. Uh, I don't know if you've ever flown on an international flight with a baby. (laughs) We flew overnight to Amsterdam uh, from Chicago, and then we had a 12-hour flight 
straight south across the whole continent of Africa, from Amsterdam to Cape Town. And at the very end of boarding, I noticed this beautiful couple get on. They were like Italian, and they were so cool looking, and just stunning. They looked like movie stars. They had two kind of grade school boys and like a 16-month-old. And as the plane started to take off, that 16-month-old started to scream. And at at first I thought, oh, you know, his ears, blah, blah, blah. He screamed for the entire 12 hours. (laughs) And I will spare you all the details of my slow slide into slander. (laughs) But I basically mentally and verbally to my husband shredded this poor couple. Like, haven't they heard about a slight overdose of Benadryl? I mean, it works. (laughs) And then get this, we're loading, our vacation's done, we're getting back on the plane to fly back up to Amsterdam, 12 hours, we're, we're getting on the plane at midnight, and I saw the couple, I was like, God, help me, anyway, I was stunned by my ability to quickly slander another human being, and so I looked at this passage this week, and I was so convicted, and I looked at the other things Paul wrote I'm going to skip the next slide. I looked at the other things Paul wrote about the use of our mouth and the way those of us who claim to love God speak about other people. And I remembered the words of Jesus who said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that anyone who murders another is subject to judgment. But I say to you, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which basically means you idiot, Or anyone who says, you fool to his brother, will be in the danger of the fires of hell. Anyone in here ever call anyone an idiot? Anyone in here ever call a politician an idiot? I felt so convicted about this, I tried to have a slander-free experiment at my house for the week. I failed the first day. I was looking at the celebration section of the courier, and I just thought it'd be funny to be snarky about another human being. And I was stunned by myself. Stunned. But after that, I had a few more successes where I realized I don't have to say everything that comes into my head. (laughs) Stunning that I've learned that at this age. And that the less I choose to actually speak the harsh word that appears in my head, the less power it has over me. And I started to imagine what could happen if I turned the wheels of momentum away from negative criticism and slander and toward using my mouth for blessing. Slander. No one, Paul says. And the last thing that I'm going to talk about, at least, Paul says many other things in this text, is this sentence. He says, be gentle toward everyone. And I know now, you know, some of you are thinking, isn't that precious? A woman teacher talking about gentleness. That's so nice. Here's the truth, though. This is Paul. This is the Apostle Paul. Strong, confident, world-changing, powerful. I have fought the good fight. I buffet my body and make it my slave. Imprisoned, but never down and out. Paul. This is not some chicken soup for the girly soul thing, this gentleness. 
And this virtue, this virtue of gentleness and Paul's command to Christ followers to seek this virtue, to live this virtue out, is in so many of Paul's writings. Here are just a few. These are all the words of Paul. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And how do you do that? You'd be completely humble and gentle. Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, says this, As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her children. The apostle Paul. Philippians 4, verse 5, he says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And there's a great thing that he writes to timothy first timothy chapter six he says but you man of god flee from this he's talking about money right before he gets to this sentence he says flee from all of this and pursue these things pursue righteousness and godliness faith love endurance and gentleness gentleness in christ followers is a big deal to paul and i wonder if you ever think about how gentle or ungentle. That's another word for mean. I like ungentle a little better though. Do you ever think about yourself? And wonder how, you know, how, how, how am I becoming more and more gentle? Now here's some, where some confusion is. The word gentle is hard to translate from the Greek to the English. So it's often translated as meek. Or humble, and you'll see that if you look at different versions of this Titus 3 verses 1 and 2. If you have a different translation, you'll see people translate this word differently. They're often used interchangeably. But when Paul uses this word, this is so important, he is not referring to some kind of hyped up, syrupy, sweet niceness. And he's definitely not referring to wimpiness. When we think, when you and I think of meekness, We tend to think of weakness, don't we? Um, But the truth is, the truth is the word behind this word that gets translated as gentle, humble, or meek comes from the equestrian world where one would meek a horse, which basically meant when the horse was broken, you would harness that horse's power for a focused reason. And so that animal of great power would, instead of doing its own will, do the will of its master. Sound like something God might want from us? So to be gentle demands strength. The strength to decide to relate to other human beings based on something other than pride and power. To be gentle means that we begin to treat other people based on something other than our own pride, wanting to prove we're better than them, Or our own power, wanting to try to use them to get our own way. Only those who are strong in Christ can be gentle. To have our power harnessed to do the will of God in this world. There was a a Catholic guy from, I think, the 15th century, Francis de Salais, who was obsessed with gentleness. And he said this, he said, nothing is so strong as gentleness and nothing so gentle as real strength. And he obsessed about gentleness for a reason. Because he believed it was one of the keys to helping to draw other human beings to Christ. 
He believed people are not drawn to Jesus by fear or intimidation or by all the rational arguments in the world. But he believed, and I wonder if Paul believed this too, and that's why he pushed this virtue so hard. De Salé believed, and I have this quote on the screen, in living the gentle, humble heart of Jesus, we win other hearts. We were on a tour in South Africa. We were at the end of the day. It was late. The guy, the tour guide, who was this awesome kind of cool, buff French guy. My girls and I both had a tiny crush on him because he was so French. And uh, he was driving us back to our place where we were staying, but we were stuck in traffic and he got lost and there's too many one ways. And so, you know, it was we were kind of all getting a little crabby, but we pulled up at one intersection and a young boy about 10 years old came up to ask for money. Happened all the time. And we were told as tourists to not look at them. And here's what that tour guide did. He rolled his window down and he cupped that little boy's face in his hand. And he said, it's so good to see you. How are you today? And then, and the boy, they talked for a little bit and he kept his hand right on that little boy's face. And then he said to him, listen, go to church and get a meal and go back to school. And then he squeezed his cheeks and he rolled the window up and drove off. And he turned back to us in righteous anger. And he said to us, don't you ever give kids like that money. Because if you do, you will subject them to the streets for the rest of their life. And he went and told about all the things he does to try to help young kids like that. Go to church and get a meal and go to school. It's in living out the gentle heart of Jesus that we can draw people to him. So be subject to rulers and authorities. Slander no one. Be gentle toward everyone. How are you doing with those things? That's the question God asked me. And to be honest, my answer was really not that good. We can't do any of these things on our own strength. We we are broken people there is no way we cannot and we will not ever become god's kind of people by trying really hard to be his kind of people although god does require we participate with him listen i can't even do the slander free zone without deciding somebody in the paper deserves my critique i mean how ridiculous is that we are broken but paul doesn't leave us here So he goes on in this remaining part of Titus 3 and he reminds us of the one hope we have of becoming transformed people. And it is the one thing we must not forget. And that is who we are and who God is and what we were like before he rescued us. Listen to what he writes. He says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. We were lost. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. We witnessed a remembrance of that up here with baptism this morning, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that... Having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. That is a trustworthy saying. 
And I want you, Titus, he says, to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. You see what he's doing there? Paul's reminding Titus to remind the people to never forget who they were before Christ and what God did for them when they did not deserve it because he believes that remembering this truth about ourselves should alter our behavior toward other people. And this is true for us today, isn't it? I am my worst self when I fail to remember who I really am and how God has rescued and redeemed and washed me clean and forgiven me and had mercy on me for no reason other than that he loved me. And when I forget what Christ has done for me, I start to believe I can treat people however I want to treat them. Elected officials, parents and babies on an airplane, street beggars, and lovely neighbors of mine who have the courage to put their picture in the newspaper. But when I remember the truth about myself... And the truth about what God did for me. I am quickly humbled to the point of kindness and gentleness toward other people. And a refusal to condemn or judge or slander. And a quickness to be subject to those that God has placed over me in authority. Because how could I treat people otherwise when I remember how God has treated me? God answered my prayer this week, (laughs) my pathetic prayer, by reminding me that I have nothing to teach, only much to learn. And so I hope you've learned some with me this morning. I'm going to close just with a prayer of Thomas Akempis that I think is so appropriate after something like this. Let me just pray. Oh, Lord. Would you let that which seems naturally impossible to us become possible through your grace? God, would you let that which seems naturally impossible to us, that we might be people who honor you by honoring those in authority over us, that we might be people who honor you by slandering no one, that we might be people who honor you by being gentle toward everyone, God, Would you let those things which seem impossible to us become possible through your grace? Amen.